Okay, we're ready to get started. Thanks for joining everybody. As you can see, Robert has changed locations, which means the format of tonight's study is going to be slightly different with some slightly different participation opportunities, it sounds like. Uh, but uh, Robert, take it away if you're ready with a continued study of Acts. Okay, well, I am actually here with my old Bible study. These are some of my dearest friends. I'm really excited that they're sitting around the table and today, the person reading the scripture is going to be one of my friends, not the one that normally records it, but I'm sure he will also do an equally fine job. So we're doing a live read, though. It's not a recorded read. Okay. Wow. No, Pressure's it's a live read. And it's the longest yeah. read we've ever done in any one session. Oh, so okay. I kind of set him up. All right. <laughs> okay. But here we go with the scripture reading. Okay. So this is Acts. 6, starting in verse 8. Mm-hmm. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. But some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, as well as some from Cilicia and the province of Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. Yet they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They incited the people, the elders, and the experts in the law. Then they approached Stephen, seized him, and brought him before the council. They brought forward false witnesses who said, This man does not stop saying things against this holy place and the law. For we had heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the council looked intently at Stephen and saw his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things true? So he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our forefather Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran and said to him, Go out from your country and from your relatives and come to the land I will show you. Then he went out from the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to this country where you now live. He did not give any of it to him for an inheritance, not even a foot of ground, yet God promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though Abraham as yet had no child. But God spoke as follows, your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign country whose citizens will enslave them and mistreat them for for 400 years. But I will punish the nations they serve as slaves, said God. And after these things, they will come out of there and worship me in this place. Then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him when he was eight days old. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs, because they were jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles and granted him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Then a famine occurred throughout Egypt and Canaan, causing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. On their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers again, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So Joseph sent a message and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come, 75 people in all. 
So Jacob went down to Egypt and died there, along with our ancestors, and their bones were later moved to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise he had declared to Abraham, the people increased greatly in number in Egypt until another king who did not know about Joseph ruled over Egypt. This was the one who exploited our people and was cruel to our ancestors, forcing them to abandon their infants so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was beautiful to God. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house. And when he had been abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. But when he was about 40 years old, it entered his mind to visit his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being hurt unfairly, Moses came to his defense and avenged the person who was mistreated by striking down the Egyptian. He thought his own people would understand that God was delivering them through, through him, but they did not understand. The next day, Moses saw two men fighting and tried to make peace between them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you hurting one another? But the man who was unfairly hurting his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You don't want to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? When the man said this, Moses fled and became a foreigner in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the desert of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and when he approached to investigate, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look more closely. But the Lord said to him, Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the suffering of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This same Moses they had rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? God sent as both ruler and deliverer through the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and miraculous signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the man who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living oracles to give to you. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him aside and turned back to Egypt in their hearts, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go in front of us. For this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. At that time they made an idol in the form of a calf, brought a sacrifice to the idol, and began rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered slain animals and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, house of Israel? But you took along the tabernacles of Moloch and the star of the god Rephan, the images you made to worship, but I will deport you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as God who spoke to Moses, ordered him to make it according to the design he had seen. Our ancestors received possession of it and brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors until the time of David. 
he found favor with God and asked that he could find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But Solomon built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all these things? You stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. I don't think there was a single mistake in there. That was very professional. <laughs> well, thank you, Austin. Um, I know that the reading for today is very, very lengthy. But this is all one speech. And so I, I struggle with this. Like, do we break up the speech into smaller sections or do we at least read it all at one time? And I thought, uh, even if we don't get to discuss all of it, we should at least read all of it. Well, um, I'm going to move through the material kind of quickly um, and we'll see what we can cover. First, let's start with Stephen. Last week, we left we left off on this conflict between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, right? Both of these groups were made up of Jews, but some of them, they had grown up in Israel. The other ones had grown up in the Greek world, or at least were descendants of, of Jews who had grown up in the Greek world. And so they spoke primarily Greek and that brought with it a different cultural background. Well, Stephen it's clearly one of these Hellenists. We know it from some of the details that were provided about Stephen, but also from his name. Uh, the name Stephen was a very common Greek name, and it is actually unheard of in Israel. We do not have a single record of a Hebrew being called Stephen. So um, we are told that Stephen is full of grace and power. He was performing uh, great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. The, the first question that we might ask ourselves is for how long, right? For how long did Stephen do this stuff before he was martyred? Now, we haven't read that, so I guess spoiler alert, but it is coming. Um, but, you know, the, the Bible will speak in these very summarized statements because they have to fit all the material onto one scroll normally. Like one book will just be in one scroll. And that can give us the impression that things move very quickly. Truly, we don't actually know how long Stephen was preaching and performing these miraculous signs. Now, we know, of course, it couldn't have been too, too long because all the action happens before the conversion of Paul. But short of that, we don't actually know how long this took. Now, I have already discussed some of the terms applied to, her, to, to him, like the term grace, which can mean favor, empowerment, or both. Uh, the, the word power, which can mean empowerment through divine gift, or particularly in the case of proclamation, it would mean boldness. And also the phrase signs and wonders, which particularly will connect a person to Moses in Exodus, right? Because we see that phrase applied particularly to Moses. And because I've discussed that in the past, that's just kind of a little reminder, but I'm not going to go into that with any more depth. Now, there is something that we ought to note, which is that the fact that Stephen was performing signs tells us that these miraculous signs were not restricted only to the 12, to the 12 apostles. But clearly, some of the other leaders, at the very least Stephen, were also able to perform these kind of signs. Now, we're also told that Stephen performed these signs in front of the people. 
the people as code for Israel. Now, of course, he only performed them in front of some people, but that kind of language is reminiscent of the prophets of old, right? Of the Old Testament prophets. They would perform signs in front of the people and speak to the people. This makes Stephen sound as a prophet, again, to all of the people of Israel. He's very, essentially, he's being portrayed as a very relevant figure at this time. Now, some people argue with Stephen. Who, who are these? They come from the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, uh, freedmen, those were men that were formerly slaves in the Roman Empire. And generally speaking, if you were, if you were uh, freed, then you would become a Roman citizen. Now, even if you became a Roman citizen, you would be this kind of citizen, a freedman. And that was a distinct social class. Normally, these freedmen could not uh, sit at, the, at, at certain places at a banquet. They normally would not be able to marry free women, meaning women who had always been free as opposed to set free and so forth. So this was a particular class of people in the ancient world. Um, many Jews were taken captive. Uh, at one point, and then they were they were freed, presumably through the financial contributions of other Jews. So it's not surprising that we see this whole community of freedmen Jews. Now, let's talk about synagogues as well briefly, so that we can set the stage. I know we have mentioned synagogues several times during our study, but I think it's important to note that these probably started actually outside of Israel. We have very early records of synagogues being present in Egypt in the 3rd century BC. And then it is probably from there that they moved into Israel. Now, a synagogue is sort of like a modern church, but actually much more. And by much more, I don't mean that in like a moral sense, like they're more important or more significant. What I mean is they literally did more things. At the synagogue, not only did you have religious activity, but they would they would act like courtrooms they would distribute charity. They would collect the temple tax is where you essentially it was both a town hall and a church all in one and then some really. Um, it was the, the central point for the community. Normally, the building of the synagogue would have been called a place of prayer, which, again, can convey that very religious idea when they were just as much civic as they were religious. Now, this. um yeah, I think I discussed that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. So, so the people who are opposing Stephen are notice other Hellenists that were part of the synagogue. We can assume that maybe this community of Hellenists, being a distinct ethnic community, they took on the responsibility of policing themselves. Right, they they preferred to oppose one of their group who was getting out of line, as opposed to let the communities or the authorities at large get involved. But uh, although Stephen faces opposition, he punches back. We are told that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Presumably, there's two things going on here. On one hand, Stephen has miraculous signs on his side. It's kind of difficult to call somebody a dummy or a liar when they can perform a miracle to validate their words. But also, I think what we ought to read into this text is that there's some superior argument that he is making, that Stephen really is making sense in what he is saying. 
again, we have discussed before that wisdom in the culture of the time for Judaism, it was closely tied to the spirit of God. And again, I've discussed that 50 times, so I'll leave it there. Um, but additionally, in this scene, what we ought to see is the fulfillment of Jesus's words, right? Jesus predicts this. Let me read here a couple of quotations that are in the blog if you're interested. But this is out of Luke chapter 12. But when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. Here's another uh, quotation from Luke, but now chapter 21. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you, handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will be a time for you to serve as witnesses. Therefore, be resolved not to rehearse ahead of time how to make your defense, for I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will have some of you put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And again, spoiler alert, we will see that this is exactly what happens, right? Stephen will be put to death. Uh, we will talk about that next time. Now, Stephen essentially amazes everyone by the way that he speaks and the signs that he's performing. So how do his opponents react? They bring false witnesses. Now, if you recall, last week we discussed that when the church needed leaders, they sought men of good reputation. When the opponents of the church need leaders, sort of, what do they bring? False witnesses. There's a, there's an, at least a, at a narrative level, there's a clear contrast going on. Mind you, both of these mentions are in chapter six. And these, these false witnesses come forth, instigated uh, by the men of, of, the, of the synagogue, and they make false accusations. For example, they say, we have heard this man speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God. They also say, this man does not stop saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him saying that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, I'm going to discuss those accusations and why it is that they're untrue in a second. But... I think it is important that we understand the tactic that the opponents are going after. I think that we, because we are studying this text in a religious context, of course, we tend to only focus about the religious part of these claims. But there's a very practical attack going on here. They're saying that Jesus' followers are opposed to the temple. And again, that is religiously shocking. I grant that I'm, I'm not arguing against that one bit. But we need to think about the practical realities going on here. If you want the people to hate someone in Jerusalem at that time, you would say that they're opposing the temple. Why? It is the big employer. Okay. It is the big activity. Let me read a quotation from Craig Keener and then I will explain. Much of Jerusalem's economy depended on the temple in ways that sometimes would have applied to immigrants as well as native citizens. The temple establishment required bakers, weavers, goldsmiths, 
washers, merchants of ointments, and money changers. Because it was still under construction, it required also stonemasons and carpenters. Its completion in 62 to 64 CE would create an estimated 18,000 unemployed workers. Okay, so if somebody opposed the temple, even even if if the people of Jerusalem were not religious one bit, which of course they were. Again, I'm not saying they weren't, but even if they had not been, this would have been terribly unpopular. Okay, the examples that come to mind when I'm you know when I was trying to explain this, this would be like if you went to early 19th century Virginia, the state of Virginia, and preached against slavery you're going to get run out of town. Or if you went to early 20th century North Carolina and was preaching against tobacco, or for that matter, if you went to modern day Alaska and were preaching against oil and gas, their economies depended on this. So you are going to be a very unpopular person. Now, add to that the religious element, and essentially you have a lynching in the making. That's the tactic that the opponents are going for. Now, um, here's a connection also that I think is, is important to make. In the Old Testament, we have precedent of people doing exactly this. An example that is almost identical would be of Jezebel going after a pious man, a good man called Ahab, who would not sell a field. And there's kind of this controversy, but but he was acting in a pious way. And, and she ga gathers false witnesses and they end up stoning him. The, I would read the, the quotation, but it is in the blog if you're interested, just for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. But the reason I point that out is because the Jews in this case are opposing Stephen. They know that what they're doing is wicked. In their own scriptures, this is called wicked. They really have no excuse to say, well, really what we're doing is righteous. The, the ends justify the means or, or something of the sort. Uh, their own scriptures would condemn them. So let's go back to the charges. Stephen is being accused effectively of three things. Uh, three times he's accused of opposing Moses or the law or the customs. Really, they, they mean the same thing in this context. He's twice charged with opposing the temple. And he is once charged with opposing God. Now, I really think that that charge of opposing God is just a more, it's a broader way of, of making the other two main claims. Hey, you oppose the law, you oppose the temple. The temple was absolutely central to Jerusalem. Like I described, just economically, it, it was central. But religiously, I mean, this is... This was their claim to fame. This was central to their identity. This was central to their religion. Without the temple, you can't really be a Jew. And I know that that is kind of a scandalous claim because the temple was destroyed and we still have Jews today. But keep in mind that the type of Judaism we have today is rabbinic Judaism, which is, it's, it's, I don't want to be offensive to anyone, but it really is a different religion from the Judaism that we're reading in, in the New Testament. Um, and again, I don't even mean that critically, I just mean it as an observation. And then the same is true with the law, right? Which the law is tied to the Torah, is tied to Moses. It's, it's all kind of one big thing that defines this people. If you take the Torah from them, they no longer have the word of God. They're no longer the chosen people. So to say that Stephen opposed the temple and the law is to say that Stephen opposed 
the Jewish people to the very core, you know, the very thing that they are about and that makes them special in a nation and a group. Now, are the claims true? And actually, we're not told what Stephen was preaching, so we kind of have to read between the lines a little bit. But it's it's very unlikely that what the false witnesses were saying was true, and that should kind of go without saying because they're false witnesses. But let's take the claim about the temple. This is actually the same false claim that was made about Jesus on during his trial. And I will read this out of Mark. Many gave false testimony against him, that being Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days build another not made with hands. Yet even on this point, their testimony did not agree. So we should ask the question, did Jesus say that he would destroy the temple? And the answer is no. He said something similar but not the same. Let me read it out of John chapter two. Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jewish leader said to him, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so Jesus did not say, I will destroy the temple, okay? The statement he, he made is, destroy this temple, talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, people who clearly were not going to destroy it. And he said, and I will raise it in three days, talking about his own body. Um, Jesus was really not anti-temple. He, he took care to cleanse the temple, right? He got very upset that people were misusing the temple. So this, this accusation is false. It was false in the Gospel of Mark. And... It was, it's false in Acts. And it doesn't really make sense that then Stephen would have been preaching something different than Jesus. And then what about the law? This, do we have reason to believe that Stephen opposed the law? And really the, the reason is, or the answer is no. When Stephen gives his speech, he relies on the law. He relies on the Torah. So it makes very little sense that he would oppose the law. Okay. So again, that's kind of setting the background for this conflict. Now, at the very end of chapter six, we have this interesting thing that happens that I want to discuss, even if briefly, because it, you know it's impossible not to note. We are told that Stephen's face looks like that of an angel. How should we take that phrase? I will give a couple of suggestions here for, for people to think about. First of all, and this is just kind of a side note, when they thought of angels, they may have thought of something similar to what we think of with angels, but they may very well have had a very different image of angels. In the Old Testament, angels are not the little like cute naked babies with wings. Uh, they're actually very scary creatures. So, you know, just keep that in mind that that phrase might not actually mean to convey what we are seeing in our heads. But the main question I want to ask is, is this a metaphor of some sort or did his face really change? And I think that we can, we can go back to two passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. In the Old Testament, 
Moses sees the glory of God. And then when he comes down from the mountain, his face would shine. And it is clear from the text that his face really did shine. Other people could see it. So he put a veil in front of his face. So that's very much literal. There's, there's really no question about that. And then the other background to this idea would be the transfiguration of Jesus. In fact, scholars talk about the, the Stephen scene as the transfiguration of Stephen. I think that's perhaps taking it a little bit far, but I will use that phrase just because that's how scholars discuss it. Um, with the transfiguration of Jesus, the scene is more ethereal. The description in the Gospels may not be entirely literal, not in the sense that the thing is a metaphor, but just it's some scenes are hard to describe. But still, clearly the transfiguration of Jesus was a real phenomenon, not some kind of allegory, metaphor, or whatever. So in this case, when the the when Stephen's face is like that of an angel, I, I think it's from from that background, I think it's quite clear that it is also a physical thing, a thing that people could see. This is not just kind of a throwaway line or some, you know, some kind of metaphor. Um, but mind you, it is a figure of speech that they use. His face was was like that of an angel. This is not a technical description. So what did that really look like? Your guess is as good as mine. But what I'm saying is something really did happen. And with that, we move into chapter seven, okay? We move into the trial proper. Now, in chapter seven, the accusations against Stephen are not repeated, but he does respond to them. So this is the framing. It's very important that we remember. What are really the, the two accusations against Stephen that he opposed the temple and that he opposed the law or the customs or Moses? That's really all one big accusation, however you want to phrase it. Now, I'm going to kind of introduce the speech, and then we are going to discuss each section briefly. And again, we'll see how far I make it into this. If we don't make it all the way, well, that's not the first time. I'll cover the, the remaining passages next week. But this trial is the, it's a turning point in the narrative. The church goes from being favored by the people to now being persecuted and scattering. Okay, the church scatters out of Israel. Now, other Jewish sects, they would actually stay away from the main society. Think of, for example, the Essenes or, um, well, some other Jewish sects. They That's why they were not persecuted, because they did not cause trouble. But the Jesus followers, they continue to challenge the authorities. And why? This is a really important question. Because they saw themselves as the true pious Jews, right? They saw themselves as the true Jews religion-wise, not, again, this is not racial in, in any mean, by, by any means. Um, and so they kept going to the leaders going, you are misleading the people. We have, we have the truth here. But that made conflict inevitable. Um, the other thing just kind of practical that I want to say before we read Stephen's response is that it was actually common in the ancient world for speakers to use ancient texts as proofs for their points. 
In this case, these texts are granted by all in the audience to be sacred and true. So not only is this a common rhetorical technique in the ancient world, but it carries extra weight because everyone agrees as to the sanctity of the text that Stephen is pulling from. And moreover, this same technique was used in the Old Testament. We see uh, several passages in the Old Testament, I quote one in the blog if you're interested, which God says, hey, remind the people of what has come before so that they will not forget essentially who I am, who they are, and what they ought to be doing. And, and again, I give an example um, in the blog. So with all this in mind, my, my last introductory comment is that Stephen's argument is based really on two axioms. There's kind of two legs that his argument is going to stand on. First is that one, if one believes that these biblical stories are true, then one believes that the present times are a continuation of those stories, right? Because you're going to see that. Essentially, Stephen is saying, hey, this happened in the past, and we are the continuation of that. Well, that means that those patterns and lessons from the stories, they can be applicable today. The second axiom, the second leg on which his argument stands is that if one reads scripture as scripture, then one will seek to emulate the good examples in scripture, right? Scripture becomes the model for life. And even the interpretive grid, it becomes the model not only as to what we should do, but how we understand the things that are happening when we ask questions like why am i suffering we are if we read scripture as scripture we're going to take scripture and use it as the grid to answer that question so with with that in mind after each section in the speech i am going to ask three questions and now these are kind of long questions with multiple parts but you know whatever it is what it is <laughs> um one what is the pattern of God's actions, particularly in relation to the land of Israel, the temple, the Torah, and the law? Okay. So how, what was God's pattern of action in relation to those things? Must the hero suffer? How is the hero regarded by others? And is he rewarded for his piety? That's the second question. And finally, does God act in predictable ways? Are God's promises fulfilled how people expect them to be fulfilled and are God's promises fulfilled when people expect them to be fulfilled. Okay. That's, that's the third aspect. And I, I give this long introduction because otherwise we read Stephen's speech and he's just like recounting history, but you might be thinking, what's his point? And these questions are going to help us draw out that point. So first we have the story of Abraham. At first, I, I thought I would reread it. For the sake of time, I won't. Um, so I'm just going to ask those three questions in relation to the story of Abraham. You would find that in Acts 7, verses 2 through 8. Now, let's go through those questions. What is the pattern of God's actions, particularly in, in relation to the land, the temple, the Torah, and the law? Well, where did God appear to Abraham? In Mesopotamia right? Before he settled in Haran. So essentially before or outside of the promised land. So God did not act because Abraham was on or possessed the holy land. God can act anywhere. And he did. He's not restricted to the land in any way. And when did God act? 
Well, God chooses to act before the law was ever given, right? So Abraham was not pleasing to the Lord because he lived in the Holy Land or because he was keeping the law. None of those things were in play yet. Okay? This is, again, this is very important to the argument. Must a hero suffer? How was he regarded by others? In the case of Abraham, at least in Stephen's recounting of the story, Abraham does not face any kind of persecution or any kind of rejection. Now, of course, if you read Genesis and the whole story of Abraham, he did face very strong opposition, very serious threats. But Stephen does not focus on that. But what he does tell us, and this is important, is that to follow God, what does Abraham have to do? He had to leave kin and country, right? He had to leave his people behind and his land behind. And then probably the most shocking when it comes to Abraham, does God act in predictable ways, right? Are, are the promises of God fulfilled in the way and in the timing that people expected? And really, like I said, this is the most shocking. One would expect that if God told Abraham, hey, I'm going to give you this land, by the time Abraham died, he would have had the land. And he would have had children to pass on the land too. But what are we told by Stephen? When Abraham dies, Abraham has none of the land, not one bit. Now, if you want to be hyper-technical, he had bought a field in the land, but technically that was not given to him. He purchased it. I'm going to leave technicalities aside. Um, but Abraham does not have the land. And late, late, late in life, Abraham still does not have a child. So now he eventually, of course, does. But the the timing then... It, when it comes to the child, it's, it's surprising. And when it comes to the land, it's even more surprising. He doesn't even inherit the land. And instead, he is told, your people will be will go to a foreign nation and be enslaved for 400 years. And it's only after then that they will have the land. Now, because God is acting in such a surprising way, God does give Abraham a sign of the covenant, right? Circumcision. So essentially, God's promises are not failing, but they are being fulfilled in surprising ways. Then we get to the story of Joseph. And again, I'm going to go through the same questions this time. I won't repeat them. I'm just going to kind of give you the main points for the sake of time. But what happens to Joseph? Joseph also has to leave his kin and his land. Now, in the case of Joseph, he's not willingly. He's betrayed by his siblings. He's sold into, a, he's sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. But notice that to follow God's plan, he had to leave his people and his land. Now, um, not only Joseph goes to a foreign land, but eventually all of their ancestors do. And all of them end up dying, actually, in this foreign land. But notice an interesting, an interesting fact. Their bones are later relocated to the promised land. And if you read the very last two verses of Genesis, this is what Joseph asks for. And why is this important? Because even those ancestors, they did not believe that the promises of God had failed. They looked forward to them. But again, notice how surprising the timing is and how it all develops. The promises will be fulfilled, but it will take a long time and it will be in shocking ways. What else is true about Joseph? He is rejected by his people right? He is, he ends up becoming their deliverer, but he is exiled and hated by his people. He's hated by the patriarchs, the people that the Jews 
looked up to the most. Now, hopefully by now, as I speak through this, you're thinking of Jesus, right? Like there's going to be lots of parallels here. And, and the last thing about Joseph is, you know, this God act in a, in a surprising way. Of course, God could have just ended the famine in the promised land, right? But he doesn't. God makes the Israelites go to Egypt and find food there, and they have to resettle in Egypt. And that would eventually lead to hundreds of years of slavery, right? Again, not the way we would expect God to act if we were just guessing. That's what I mean by that. And then we get to Moses. This is the longest section in the speech. It is it is quite, quite lengthy. Now, we see actually the same motifs, right? Who does God choose? He chooses a man in a foreign land in Egypt who is raised by foreign parents. Um, and he's actually kind of twice exiled because after being in Egypt, he's exiled again to Midian. Okay, So are we talking about a person of the promised land? Are we talking about a person who already had the law? No, on both accounts. Must the hero suffer? How is he regarded by others? And I'm going to stop here in three minutes. I'm, I'm watching the clock in case anybody's wondering. He, Moses, is rejected by his people, right? And he's rejected multiple times, actually. But Moses protects some of them at the very beginning of the story. And although so he delivers some of the Jewish people, they do not understand and reject him. Then he tries to make peace between two Israelites, and again they reject him. And then the story only gets worse because essentially, like long story short, the minute that Moses turns his back, the people are like, we don't know what happened to Moses. Make us a calf. We need something to worship. And truly the worst part of it all is the prophecy from Amos that is applied here, that is at the end of that long Moses uh, reference, in which essentially what Stephen is saying, you guys continue to worship other gods, Moloch, in perpetuity. Even when you guys were engaging in the sacrifices and you were being taken care of by God, you guys in your hearts continued to be disloyal. Right. That is a very, very, very ugly accusation, a very powerful accusation. And, you know, does God act in predictable ways? Again, nothing of, of, of the story is predictable, but particularly the ending in the, in the sense that you would think that when salvation finally comes to the people and they're finally delivered from slavery and taken to their land and everything is set right, there would be joy and gratitude and obedience, and that doesn't happen. But Abraham speaks of another, right? The story is not over. Um, and that's really, before we get to the very end of, of Act 7, which we're going to have to do next time, let me give you kind of the big conclusion. And I know that I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to summarize this. But this is the question that that we should be thinking about. Are all of these things, is Abraham, um, you know, is Moses and all these things that happen in between, are they the fulfillment or are they pointing to something else? Is there a greater fulfillment of the promises that is even more surprising, more shocking than before and even more powerful, right? Is there a grander story 
Or is this it? Put to a Jew, essentially. Was God's plan only for Israel to have this particular land and for God to dwell in this particular temple? Is this it? Is this the end of the story? Or are all of these things pointing to something even greater, right? And this is a whole disagreement between a Christian and a Jew, right? They were saying, look, you kind of missed it. because and, and people missed it every time throughout the Old Testament. There is a more surprising and a grander fulfillment to all this, and that is Jesus. And Jesus now is going through the exact same thing, essentially, well, and his followers, as did all of the other heroes of the Old Testament. They're being rejected by their people. They're having to leave kin and country so that God's fulfillment may come to fruition. Um, yeah, and I'm going to stop there. Um, and Matt, turn it over to you. Sure. Thanks, Robert. As always, guys, if you'd like to join the conversation, just write the word question in the chat. I'll be happy to bring you in. In the order in which we receive those requests, just the word question is sufficient. As far as my own thoughts, uh, I might be going a little bit outside the text here, but I was just reading a little bit about Stephen as we were talking about him. And at least if my sources are correct, he's regarded as Christianity's first martyr. Is that fair to say? Okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, why is Christ himself not regarded as Christianity's first martyr? Yeah, I suppose that's kind of a, <laughs> honestly, I had never thought about that. Uh, if I'm being completely honest, but I suppose because Jesus kind of started it all. So we're just talking about his followers. Okay. Um, but, but I essentially, I guess, if somebody wanted to argue Christ was the first, I'd be like, sure. Point I guess it's kind of, it's like, was Christ himself Christian? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not even asking rhetorically. I'm asking legitimately. If he was something, if he was not himself Christian, he can't die for Christianity, I guess. He was a good Jewish boy. Okay. So maybe that's the distinction. Uh, it's just. Yeah, uh, and I would say there is a distinction like Christ does not point to the way Christ is the way. Mm -hmm. And this is a key difference between Christianity and other religions where their prophets point to the way Christ is the way it is his sacrifice that allows us to be reconciled with God yeah. as opposed to his sacrifice pointing to something else that reconciles us with there, God. There's uh in the chat, they're saying, you know, he, he didn't die. And of course he didn't die in, in the way that we think of uh, a death in any other context. But I guess my question would be, doesn't the resurrection imply a death? Isn't that what makes yeah. it? miraculous you know he certainly died he certainly died like to deny that he died would be to deny christianity like it's it, like a different yes. I mean, but i get their point it's a death that is qualitatively different obviously it's not the same as anybody else or any other way that we think of it i suppose if so i'm going to push back against it just a little and not like not to correct anyone or whatever but it, i would say his death is not qualitatively different like okay. in the sense that he died he really did die like a person dies. What's different is that then, you know, he was resurrected. But I think to take away from his death, and Matt, again, I'm not saying you're saying this. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I just, it it would lead to problems. Like it would be either a denial of his humanity or of his sacrifice. So I think like every Christian throughout the ages, we ought to say, no, he, he died like anyone dies, but he just came back to life. Okay. I may have some other thoughts if we have time, but I want to make sure everybody else gets their time to offer thoughts as well. So uh, Rev Rogers, go ahead. 
Um, basically, I just want to make some observations about Stephen's speech. Um, Stephen was accused of being opposed to the law, and he did a very clever thing in his speech. He gave examples from the law of a righteous man being opposed by people. And, and all of the people, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, were opposed as, as kind of a prophet of God, were opposed by someone. There was an antagonism at, against the prophet. And what Stephen is doing in his message, he is not first defending himself as a righteous man being opposed by the people. He's setting up the idea that Jesus is the righteous man, the righteous prophet, opposed by the very people that are listening to him. And so it's just a clever way that Stephen is subtly bringing the law in and saying the law itself has examples of righteous men being opposed by the people. And you guys are the people opposing the righteous man, Jesus. And by extension, also, he Stephen is defending himself because he's being opposed by you guys. And so I just wanted to point that out. All right. Uh, do you have thoughts on that, Robert? 100%. That's one of the points I think I was trying to make, but because of time, I couldn't make it all that well. So I'm so glad that that he said that. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Rev Rogers. Uh, generally specific. Go ahead. Um, don't accuse me of brevity here. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as possible um, and respect people's time. So a couple of things that were said I found very interesting. Um I myself am Greek. Uh, I myself am recently, you haven't seen me for about a month now because I've been doing through my own struggles. I was basically called a wolf in my last church hmm. for quoting the Bible and scriptures to people that were out of biblical order within my church. As I discovered it, being a young Christian, I've maybe read a quarter of the Bible, but I read it diligently. I don't read it to put a feather in my cap. I read it to understand it and try to apply it. Um, righteous men not using their own righteousness or their own words, applying the Bible to people that want to use Christianity like a salad bar, you'll run into problems. Um, so that said, I'm kind of glad that you kind of went hard on these stiff-necked Jews a little bit, uh, Robert, because it kind of takes a little bit of the stress off of me because I, I have some criticisms too. And I'm going to be super brief with this. I hope it comes out clear. Uh, the notes I wrote is, it seems to me that the average Jew is the bad guy in the world stage even before the time of Moses. God heard the groans of his people. So stereotypical. I know. Lana would be proud. Um, <laughs> if God, in his infinite wisdom, was constantly ragdolling the Jews, i.e. the, the stiff-necked people, why are they considered to be uncriticizable by man today? If Jesus is God, and we are to follow Jesus, should we not, too, call these so-called Jews of the synagogue of Satan out? for what they're doing. Not all Jews, just the ones that get under the umbrella of Jew. Um, from my understanding, the non-Masonic Jews um, will not confess Jesus as Lord until that there's the slain witnesses self-resurrect and continue to preach the gospel and, and revelation. Uh, Acts 7, uh, Acts 7, 53 says all you need to know. You who have received the law by the direction of the angels and have not kept it, how, how are they truly any better or different from all the Jews that have rejected Jesus back then and still to this day? 
So, and then, and then the other point was Luke and, and I'll end it with this. Um, the other point was, uh, Luke, um, looks like 49, but it goes into 50, all the way to 53 where he basically says, I have not come. People are asking me, you know, you're the uniter. No, he came to divide father, you know, father uh, will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and so on and so forth. So why can't I criticize the Jew for what the Jew is doing and acting like they're greater than God in current, in current times? So why, why am I being forced to be silent when God has been ragdolling the Jew throughout history and will continue to do so until the revelation? Oh boy. You ready, Robert? I don't know. <laughs> this is how I lose my job and my career. Uh, okay, Chris. I mean, this guy, I'm sorry. Let me say this. In Romans itself. Let's get Robert's thoughts really quick. I'll come, I'll come right back to you, okay? Uh, Cecil, right? I'll come right yeah, back to yeah. you, okay? There you go. Um, yeah, I'll I'll make this brief. I will say this. Uh, it's This is a complicated topic to discuss in just a few seconds, but um some of the complications is because, for example, that term is it can be racial on one side, it can be religious on the other. And people, it seems like they redefine the word however they please. Like what I'm getting at is it's it's a complicated topic, but I will say this. In in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. I don't really care um what their their ethnicity, race, or religion is. All I care about is, is Christ Lord or not? Um, now, I will agree that there is kind of a special kind of sadness that comes over when you see that somebody has received the scriptures and they have misinterpreted the signs, right? Like, I, I'm i a Christian. I earnestly believe that the Old Testament leads to Jesus, like Stephen, I think, is arguing in this speech. And so when you have a people who have received the scriptures but have rejected their Messiah, there is a sadness there that is special to them. Um, so I will I will leave it at that and, and turn it over to Cecil if that's all right. Yeah, Cecil, do you want to respond directly to this point? And then I'll get Chris after that. Yeah. Yeah, real quick is God keeps his promises. God promised to Israel they are his people. If you deny that, you deny God. He has already created a place for them. I know they don't believe in Jesus. I know that stuff. But if you even look like in Romans and the other, Paul goes, they are, we are being branched onto the Jewish people, not replacing them. All right. Thanks, Cecil. Uh, Can I respond to that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose we could. I just want to make sure that Chris has his time, but we do have a few minutes. So uh, I think Chris is the last request to speak. So so let's. Yeah, we could, uh, we have time. We could respond to this point and come back to Chris. So I want to to point out some options and I'm going to like, you know, I always try to sit on the fence and all that stuff. But Cecil is coming from a perspective that is called dispensationalism, that it it views two covenants uh, in the New Testament. There is one covenant for the Jewish people and there's a different covenant for the church. And that's what what Cecil is expressing and what I what I just want to point out as options is that um, many, many Christians throughout the ages have taken the opposite view that there's only one covenant and there's no essentially the, the, the promises made to the people of God 
have always been to just the people of God, which includes now in this age, anybody who believes in Jesus. So they're not specific to the Jews. Uh, now, essentially, they are for the church, meaning anyone who believes Jew or Gentile. Now, from from what Cecil said, I can tell that he would strongly disagree with that. All I am trying to do is not even argue against them, is to present this alternative view, because really it has been the majority view throughout the church age. This dispensational view has become very popular in the last hundred years. Now, I'm not trying to commit the, the genetic fallacy. I'm not saying that because it's only been around a hundred years is wrong. That would be fallacious. But I would be remiss if I did not point out the more historical view of the church. Okay, with that, I'll pass it. All right, yeah, let's um, let's get Chris to offer his thoughts. And then I know people seem... I, we seem to have touched a nerve here. So if anybody wants a, you know, a rebuttal on those points, you're welcome to do that before we finish up, but let's get Chris's thoughts. Hey, thank you guys again for the opportunity and thank you, Robert, for a good lesson as usual. Um, yeah, actually my, my question is, uh, I had, it's not touching a nerve at all. Um, in fact, I was going to get into, I had a few questions on the particulars of this passage, but, uh, the way Robert kind of buttoned it up at the end, um, I just wanted to ask a question that's a little more maybe thematic, and that is, um, are, you know, one one comment is <clears throat> the way you talked about how I, f- I forget how we how you framed it, but basically that you know w- was the nation of Israel an end in itself, or was it like a means to something else? And one of the things that always gives me confidence in that is the Bible doesn't start with the nation of Israel. I mean, there's a lot of water under the bridge before you ever even get to even Abraham and the, and the promises being fulfilled to Abraham. So there's that. And the other, the other thing I was just going to say is, aren't you just kind of amazed how it all fits together? That That's the thing. It just really, to me, gives me so much confidence in the strength of scripture. It's almost like the the pieces in a bridge or something, you know how, you know how like in a truss bridge, it, it's like this piece fits with this piece and this fits, you know, and it's just very rigid and sturdy and integral. And I was just kind of curious if you felt the same way about that. Uh, absolutely. I like the more I study the Bible, the more I'm amazed by how it all fits together. I, you know, I think the argument about inconsistencies in the Bible, it kind of shows you how consistent the Bible is, that people have to point to these very kind of odd things like, hey, this one very specific thing over here doesn't seem to be 100% consistent with this other random thing over there. But nobody ever points to large themes, right? Nobody's like, hey, this one book of the Bible just is like completely off compared to this other book. Um it, it, it is incredible. So yeah, I agree with you, Chris, a hundred percent. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, that is all the requests to speak. Although, as I said, if anybody wants to follow up on any of the prior points or to raise a different point, we probably do have a couple minutes here. Um, I, I, at this point, I won't even ask you to write in the chat, go ahead and chime in if you'd like, otherwise, uh, we'll call it a night there, but, um, but uh, no takers. No. All right. Uh, Robert, do you have any other thoughts before we uh, close out? Um, I know that I touched on a very hot topic there. The, the one day that I don't give a disclaimer that I'm going to be edgy. Apparently I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did not mean to. I, I hope that what I discussed about chapter seven today 
I think it's true regardless of whether you have a dispensational view or or not. I I did not even mean to touch on that topic. So if I did, I don't know. I apologize, I guess. Um, but yeah, that is a very, very uh, hot topic. And if we ever want to talk about that, I'm more than happy to just dedicate an entire Bible study to that because really it would kind of take that long to do it justice. Hmm. Can, oh, I, can I just have a point of order, Matt? Yeah, I... yeah sure. I don't feel like one of those leftists. Point of order. Yeah. All right. No, I just I just want some clarification from uh, uh, Mr. Pryor, uh, Cecil, if you don't mind, if that's if that's not showing you any disrespect. Um, I understand the Bible says that whoever God puts in His hand cannot be snatched out of His hand, right? I I, I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about, and I agree with that 100. Um, percent Salvation is freely giving, but it will cost you everything. And there's some people don't want to give up the worldly stuff. Uh, Nicodemus, for example. Um, so where's Nicodemus going to be? Because he didn't give up everything and follow Christ. He, and he really regretted that. So I, I, I look at it like there's going to be something, it, there's a quid pro quo the, the caveat is you have to do something, i.e. confess that Jesus is Lord. He died on, died on the cross. He was resurrected and no one gets to the father, but through the son. That's what my Bible says. So I, I don't know what Bible you're reading, sir. And I, with respect, I, I just, I'm curious. Okay. Do you believe that God said to Jews that they're his holy people and that they are there? Then, for you to deny that, you have to deny God. He I'm has just, the power. Just, no, because you're making yourself God when you say what you say. I, 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 he I'm chooses just, who becomes part of him, not you. I'm curious as to when I said that he weren't, they weren't God's chosen people. When when did those words ever exit my mouth? See, that's false witness. Well, when you call them the Church of Satan, you're doing it right there. Jesus Himself said that they their father is not your father is not my father. If you if your father were Abraham, you would hear the word the love in my words. Your father is the father of lies. You are the synagogue of Satan. You have a problem with Jesus's words, not with my words. Again, here we go again. I'm quoting the Bible. I'm quoting Jesus himself. And certain men are having a problem with it. I understand why Stephen was the first to get martyred. I'm a Greek. All right. I, Cecil, I'll give you a last word if you'd like. Nope. Okay. Well, thank you guys for both of your participation. I know obviously you guys are both passionate about it, and I appreciate your respectful discussion. And and uh, I'm glad to see it. This is these are This is exactly the sort of stuff I'm here to hear. Because I don't know a lot about this sort of stuff, and I appreciate the differing perspectives offered for me to consider. So thank you guys for that. It really does uh, enrich the the study experience for me, and I appreciate it. Uh, okay, anything else, Robert, before we call it a night? No, that's it. Thank you to everyone. And and like you said, to you know, some, some healthy debate, it's always fun. Uh, but this is a topic that can get out of hand. And so, again, if we want to talk about it sometime, more than happy to. But with that, just thank you, everyone, for showing up. All right. Appreciate you guys joining. Uh, of course, we will be back next Friday night with uh, the study resuming. And if you missed any part of this study or you'd like to listen to studies past, head on over to the Bible page of my website. It's linked on the homepage. You can listen to all the past studies. You can read uh, Robert's blog posts. You can send us a message as well. But we hope to see you back next week, Friday, 9 Eastern. Have a great week in the meantime.